Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Jocko Willink always surprises. One of my all-time favorite books is Extreme Ownership, how everything you do in life, you have to understand what it means to take full responsibility for it, whether it's good or bad outcomes, and the benefits of having extreme ownership of everything in your life. But today, in fact, he has his first thriller novel coming out. It's called Final Spin. I read it. It kept me on the edge of my seat. It really is a a thriller. And I always like it when somebody is, you know, he's been in the Navy SEALs. He has a consulting business, a business that manufactures clothing, Jocko Iced Tea, which I have a bunch of. And now he is a thriller novelist. Don't try to label people is kind of the overriding message of his career. You could do whatever you want. And that's what I'm always impressed by with Jocko. So Jocko, I am so impressed. I didn't even know you were writing a thriller. When I first started this, I thought uh, Final Spin was going to be you know, a way of the warrior kid kind of book. Like I, I didn't know. Cause even the, even the font, the format looks almost like a children's book, but, uh, this is a great thriller. Like what's, <laughs> what brought this on? You're a, th- you're a thriller writer. Now you're going to be the next James Patterson. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, I can tell you what it brought it on is I have a bunch of ideas in my head and they all are just constantly struggling with each other to see which one gets to get out and get on paper and this one won the fight, so here it is. Oh my gosh! So this is great. So, it first off, really good job. It reminded me of like Brad Thor in that he builds up and builds up, and the problems get greater and greater. And there's in a thriller, there's not necessarily twists always, but just you want to find out how our hero gets out of these situations that that he or she is in. And this one, you kind of, you escalate the tension. It's, things are happening. But there is a kind of metaphor for life in here, I think. Tell me what you were thinking, like, when you, when you wrote this. Oh, man, there's so many things that I've thought about in my life that are all kind of wrapped up in this book. I mean, clearly, one of the themes is about happiness. You know, a lot of that came from when I was a kid. I, well, to begin with, as a kid, I always had this underlying sort of, or I always sensed this sort of underlying, this underlying 
like a sadness in the world. And, and by that, I just mean, I would look around at the people that I knew and it seems like things would seldom work out the way people wanted them to. And that's just the reality. So I always felt like even though if people were putting a smiley face on that, there was always something that was missing and, and, and that underlying sadness and the underlying suffering and turmoil of being a person, being a human in the world and what you have to go through to kind of suffer through life in many cases. And, you know, and then that the, this is, this is the opposite of this woman that I worked with when I worked at Wendy's when I was a kid. <clears throat> I worked at Wendy's when I was a kid and there was this woman that worked there who had some form of mental disability. Probably it was just some form of autism. And she, her name was Jean and she worked at the Wendy's and she was in charge of the salad bar, which I guess Wendy's don't even have salad bars anymore, but they used to have a salad bar. And she was, she was obsessed with making sure that the salad bar was squared away, making sure that the pineapple was topped off, make sure that the dressings hadn't spilled onto the, the area where you put the trays, making sure that the shredded carrots look good. And it was kind of a weird thing to watch because she was the ultimate employee, like the best employee that Wendy's has ever had globally. She's the best employee that they ever had. She just loved it. But she kind of got, she wasn't treated very well by people and I was always, you know, just, I would just try and be nice to her. And I would try and talk to her about other things. And the only thing she ever would want to talk about is the salad bar. I'd say, uh, hey, did you, did you do anything last night? And she'd say, oh, no, I just was thinking about getting the cucumbers cut at a really good pace. And I, I wanted to make sure that, our, that, the, that the croutons were all fresh. And that's what she was like. And it seemed like they were kind of... It seemed, it seemed like they were taking advantage of her, but at the same time, she was happy. And she was happier than anybody that I knew, including myself. Do you think she was sort of judging her success by how, like, was her, what, was she getting her dopamine hit from a perfect salad bar? Like, were people giving her feedback and encouragement and, like, the customer, she could see the customers were enjoying it? Well, no, that's the sad thing from my perspective. The sad thing is that she wasn't getting any compliments from anybody. In fact, they were a little bit mean to her. Yeah. Um, and But I think that she just thought that that was her duty and she did get some some satisfaction and some happiness just by doing her duty. And she was into it. So do you think, like I always wonder this, like sometimes I see people... I, I, I don't know, I, I'm picturing people just driving in a car, like a family, happy... Maybe they have regular jobs and they're going on some adventure. They're going camping for the weekend. And it just seems, I sometimes wonder, and this is related, are they happy and what, and is it, is it happier to just accept? And I say the word accept, it might be a wrong word. Just the regular day-to-day -day life, a, a regular job, uh, uh, simple pleasures. And I feel like I, I, and this will, this is in particular context with you, but I always call these people civilians. And I feel like you're either a civilian and for you, you actually are a non-civilian. But I always feel like people who kind of, you know, go out on their own, do, do uh, challenging things with their life, which could often have high volatility, could often be very disappointing 
as well as very satisfying. These are somehow non-civilians. And a lot of us, you in particular, but me and other people who choose to go their own path, we, you set yourself up for a lot of disappointment and a lot of potential frustration. Do you think the simpler life, the, the happier? So luckily for me in my consulting business, I work with all kinds of different people. And I think what we're talking about, there's a spectrum of where people are at. And, and there's some people, I mean, you got Jean on one to the end of the spectrum that she's happy running that salad bar. She's into it. Look, I work with people that are in all, every business that you can imagine, and they love it. They love their business. They love making deals. They love building houses. They love, uh, you know, putting in electrical conduit into a building. They feel great satisfaction. And that's awesome. I, I, I love that. I think that's outstanding. And I work with people like that all the time. The other... The other end of the spectrum is people that have ended up in a situation where they're kind of doing what they want to do. They created their own path like you're talking about. And I think that's good too. So I think in anywhere on that spectrum, you can have people that are truly happy. But what this book is about really, I mean, one of the aspects that this book is about and this the aspect that I wrote it from was people that don't want to be where they're at. And they maybe they should have taken that risk. Maybe they should have made a little bit better moves. And they didn't, and they end up caught in a rut. And that's what happens to, you know, Johnny and Goat, the two main characters. They they kind of had ended up where they're at and they're not, neither one of them's happy. Yeah, like you, you, like it says right in the front flap, Johnny shouldn't be in a dead-end job, shouldn't be in a dead-end bar, shouldn't be in a dead-end life, but he is. And I think a lot of people relate to that. And I think some of that is real, like that he might be in a dead end job, but some of that is also how you, you're, you're allowed to perceive your life any way you want. Like Jean you, you're from Wendy's perceives her life as great. She's not in a dead end job. She's in charge of the salad bar and she gets a lot of pleasure from that. That's her, that's her art. How much of that do you think is just self-talk, self-perception? I don't know. I, I don't know that people that are not where they're supposed to be, I don't know that they can self-talk their way into it. I've been around enough people to experience, and you know, this was a lot of the a lot of people I grew up with. Um, and, and in particular, I don't know if you noticed, the book is dedicated to a kid named Jeff Lang. And Jeff Lang, I don't know what version of co cop you have, but Jeff Lang was a friend of mine growing up, and he was uh, like a, a really talented kid, smarter than me, funnier than me, a better athlete than me, just kind of like a better human being than me. And but he made, you know, he was also. He, you know, I was a very rebellious kid and he was just, he was a little bit more rebellious. So when we, when we were in fifth grade, we were in fifth grade together. That's the only time we actually had a class, a full class together was fifth grade. We, we had, we were in the same classroom all day with the teacher. Mr. Parker was his name, as a matter of fact. And, you know, we'd kind of get in trouble, but if Mr. Parker said, Hey, you two knock it off, or I'm going to send you to the principal's office, I would kind of knock it off. And Jeff wouldn't knock it off. And he'd just go a little bit further. He'd get sent to the principal's office. So he kind of did that. That was, he was just a little bit more rebellious than me. And he ended up, you know, going down the path of, of, of drugs and alcohol and that whole thing. And I didn't. And he ended up, you know, when I joined the Navy, when I joined the Navy, he, the last time I saw him, he talked to me about it. And he said something along the lines of, I wish I could go with you. And I said, well, you can, why don't you, you know, clean up a little bit and you can do it. And he looked at me and I could see the look in his eyes. He actually knew he couldn't, he didn't, you know, he'd, he'd been on drugs. He'd been drinking. 
he, I don't even know if he completed high school. I don't remember, but he, so I joined the Navy. I left and, and, you know, this was a kid that when we were, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, we would run around the woods playing, playing army. So it was the perfect job. So I went, it went in the Navy and eventually it was about probably after I'd been in for six months, maybe nine months, I was in SEAL training and he killed himself. And I, that always stuck with me because he was such a talented guy. I had another, I, and I had a, a slew of friends that just ended up, they didn't reach their potential. And, and I, so I think your idea of, look, if you're working at Wendy's and you need to tell yourself that this is fun and you need to tell yourself that this is good and you need to tell yourself that you're making a difference. I actually think I'm going to complete my thought by saying I, I don't think I agree with you. James, but but I'm, think... I'm not I'm not saying you can bullshit yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm okay. saying I'm because your your brain is smarter than your words. Like your brain knows you're bullshitting yourself. But maybe there is some way to kind of train yourself to be happy with your circumstances. Because I bet you know CEOs also who they've got everything in life going for them and they're still miserable. And I feel like again maybe self talk was the wrong word, but. There's some way. There's some way their their outlook on life needs to needs to shift clearly. Yeah, and you know what I think the the way their outlook on life needs to shift is just perspective. And this happens to people where some some life event happens. You, the, you, what you just brought up, the CEOs that are have everything they could ever want and they're miserable. I've no, I've absolutely known people like that. I know you have too. But sometimes those people in those situations have a perspective shift. And whether it's someone that they care about gets a disease, someone, or they, they maybe get a disease, some trauma unfolds on them and it puts their whole life into perspective. And they realize, here I am mad because James has a, has a bigger jet than I have and I'm mad about it and I can't, I can't let it go. And then one day something happens where I realize I'm super lucky to be just in the situation that I'm in. You're right. It's a change in perspective. And... I wonder a how to tell people how to change that perspective. Sometimes it's a matter of just doing the basics of sleeping well, exercising, eating well, and that has a that's a natural booster of mood and perspective. Other people say you should have some sort of gratitude practice. So there's a variety of these techniques that that many people are reluctant to do. They say, "Okay, after I finally get the bigger jet, then I'll start feeling grateful because I'm not grateful yet. I'm hungry still." For instance, you've been in war. You've had friends killed and you been in very dangerous situations. It's not like you say, boy, I can't wait to, I'm dancing to work every day. So what's the perspective you take then? Well, oddly enough, I did dance to work every day and enjoyed the hell out of it. But certainly to your point, going into combat and losing friends and realizing how lucky we are, that's a perspective shift. And that's why I think a lot of combat veterans, they have that different perspective where we feel an immense amount of gratitude that we got to come home and we get this opportunity to live our lives. So yes, I think that that combat does instill gratitude in, in you as a person. Now, what we have to be careful of, and we see this as well, is combat can also, that gratitude can also come across as another G word, which is guilt, right? Where instead of me feeling gratitude that I got to come home, I feel guilt that I'm the one that got to come home and my friend didn't. So that's a that's a fine line between those two. That's for did you sure. Go, did you go through that? I, I think I I think everyone goes through that. I think I go through that. I think I went through that. I think I still go through it. I, I absolutely do. 
you feel horrible and guilty that your friends didn't come home, especially when you're in charge of those those guys. It's awful. Uh, but I but I think it's important, and I think what I realized is that 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 guilt is in from from the way I look at it, that guilt is an insult to them. It's an insult to them. It's like you give me a gift, James, and I and I throw it back in your face, right? Yeah, that's no, a good way. I, I need to. I need. I can't have guilt. I need to have gratitude. See, that's a shift in perspective. That you're not. You're not bullshitting yourself, but you did have to kind of come up with that logic, and it, and it it rings really true. That yes, if if let's say let's say I was dead, but thinking of things and I saw that you were feeling guilty, then I would think, well, what the heck did I die for? So if he's still having pain uh, about this. But, you know, it makes me think, like, obviously you weren't always kind of this this natural leader, and now you advise leaders, you have a whole leadership consulting business. You know, what was what, what do you think was a pivotal point, uh, and was it when you were in combat where, where you, you had a shift there, where you realized, oh, I, I'm I'm talented at something, and this is going to create some meaning in my life, and, and and help others as well. Yeah, that was just my journey in the military. I was, and and I wrote about this in my last book, Leadership Strategy and Tactics. Just the the fact that look, I wasn't that great at anything, James. I wasn't the fastest runner. I wasn't the fastest swimmer. I wasn't the best shot on the team. I wasn't the best athlete. I wasn't the strongest. So what could I do? I had to kind of focus on something that that I figured out a little bit about. And what I figured out a little bit about was, you know, how to take take a step back, look around, and figure out what to do in tough situations. And I kind of focused on that. And then I focused on the leaders that were around me, the good leaders and the bad leaders, and learning lessons from them. And that was sort of almost by default what I ended up focusing on. And I, I mean, I, and I had that when I was a kid. I had that same sort of thing when I was a kid where I, I wasn't the best at anything, but I was pretty good. I had some natural capability of getting people to to move in the same direction together. And and then I just focused on that throughout my career and and it wasn't an intentional focus for a long time. It was more of a default focus. It wasn't like I said, "Oh, I want to be a leader." I never I never consciously thought that until much later in my career when I had already de facto become a leader. And I think that's one of the things that really is is a at least a positive move or at least a positive direction is when people don't want to be a leader. We, we, we've got, you know, it's like, how do you figure out who wants to be, who, who's a good candidate for president? Well, just about anybody that really de- has a deep desire to be president, I don't want them as president because they've got some twisted mentality that want to be in charge of everybody. Uh, now, could there be some benevolent human being that truly wants to be president because they think they can guide the nation in the best way? Sure, that's possible. But I think the 80% is probably someone that has a big ego and wants to be in charge. So so I think that's the same with any leadership. And, and that's why I think, like I said, I kind of de facto ended up there. I wasn't a person that was going, oh, I'm going to be a leader. I, that's what I'm going to do. I want to be in charge of people. I sort of was good at it, had a natural inclination for it. Maybe I wasn't good at it, but I had a natural inc- inclination toward it. And then I found myself in leadership positions just because I would step up. And and when, when there was a leadership vacuum, I would kind of step up and make some things happen. And I got good at it over time, or at least better at it. And that's kind of how I ended up here. So, so th- this is a really important concept. So it's not like, like, and, and I remember from our prior conversations, 
you often took a leadership role even when you weren't the leader. Like there was, you know, sometimes the leader or the the the, the platoon head or whatever you call it, I don't know, would, would was, wasn't the natural leader and you would often have to play that role even though you deferred to the person who was uh, in, over you. And so I wonder if in general to, to achieve X in life, you have to be, you have to basically start acting like X times two, meaning you have to act even beyond what it is you want. So I'll think of a simple example. Let's say you want to be the best uh, at bowling in your local bowling league. You have to, you have to start acting and, and training as if you were the best bowler in the state. And then along the way, naturally, you'll be the best bowler in your local league. And so here in the, in the military, you weren't, you, you weren't just saying or asking for permission, hey, can I be a le leader now? You were sort of, you were acting beyond that. Like you were assuming already that you were the leader of even the people who were leading you. And that naturally, the, naturally then the title came to you because you were already acting past that. Yeah, perhaps, except for this was all, quite frankly, very unconscious to me, mm -hmm. very unconscious to me. Not, I wouldn't think to myself, I want to be a leader. What I think to myself is, oh, no one knows what to do right now. I do. I need to tell everybody. It's just as simple as that. That's literally what it was like for me when I was a young SEAL. Oh, we're in this situation. I'm not in charge. I'm one of the lowest ranking guys, but I'm looking around. I can see what we need to do. No one's, no one seems to be making a decision. I'm just going to make a decision not because I wanted to be in charge, but just because I wanted to help the team. So yeah, it was, I wouldn't say I had this conscious thought of I'm going to become a leader. It's just sort of where I ended up. But like the CEOs you deal with, they want to be better leaders and they have to consciously think of it. And they can't just think of, oh, how can I be a better leader here? They really have to go beyond what they've been doing. Beyond, They're already technically the leader of their company, but they have to kind of achieve beyond what they had even dreamed of in order to just be good, better at what they're doing now. Well, yeah, and specifically, now we're getting into some specifics here. I work with leaders all the time that are leaders because they've been placed in that position. And they've been placed in that position for usually for pretty good reasons in the civilian sector. And so they, they're, they're in these positions and they could use their authority and their rank to impose their will on people, but that's not effective leadership. And so, right. yes, they want to actually move beyond a situation where they need to impose their will on people. They want to move to a, a point where they have a team that the team is acting the way the team is supposed to act and moving in the right direction with very little, if any, guidance from the leader. And that's the optimal leadership. The best operations that I led as a leader, I didn't say anything. I barely had to do anything because my team all understood what the mission is, why they were doing the mission, what the goal was, what the end state was, how to make decisions, how to lead their small elements in support of the broad strategic goal. I barely had to do anything. That's the ideal that I always strive for. And I feel like you just said those items in order. So what the mission is and why this mission is important. It seems like that's a key thing. So at any given point when they're doubting the mission or they forget the goal or they misunderstand the goal, as long as they know why, it seems like you could build everything from that. Yes. Why is a critical element of utilizing decentralized command because now the team, if you just tell people what to do and something changes, well, now they're stuck. 
you know, if, if I tell you to assault a building from the north and you go from the north and there's a big obstacle in the way, well, what are you going to do now? You, you yeah. can't do anything. I told you assault from the north, there's an obstacle you can't get through. If I say, hey, I need you to assault this target building, and the reason why I need you to do that is because this is a place that's going to launch attacks on our other base. And I, I need them to be stopped. And you go, okay, you attack from the north, there's an obstacle. You say, hey, we're going to move around. We're going to attack it from the west. You figure it out on your own because you know why you're doing it. Was it important to you? Did you know naturally like, okay, I need to tell people why we're doing these things. I need to give them motivation. Yes. Yes. That was pretty natural for me. And it wasn't, it wasn't even natural for me. It was learned because I had bad leaders that wouldn't tell us why. And I mm -hmm. had good leaders that would tell us why. And I always said, well, I, why, hmm, why is it really enjoyable to work with this work for this guy, but it's horrible to work for this guy. Oh, this guy's just imposing his plan upon us. And this guy is telling us why we're doing it. And then kind of letting us come up with our own plan way better. You know, and, and this all started off because the characters are unhappy because they're in a job they shouldn't be. And in fact, like Johnny, the, the main character reminds me of what, how you described your friend, Jeff Lang, which is why, probably why you dedicated the book to him. And Artie, another main character, reminds me of Gene. So, uh, uh, you know, you, you, were, you were thinking about these things. What do you tell people who, who feel like they're in a dead-end job or life's not going their way, and, but they've got that mortgage, they've got these responsibilities? Maybe it's even a CEO who amped up his lifestyle, and now he's just got to continue it because he can't back down now, but he's unhappy. What do you, what do you tell them? What you have to do is you have to think strategic instead of tactical. So those are some military terms, but strategic means I'm going to think long-term. Tactical means I'm going to think short-term. And, and what you have to do is you have to think long-term. You have to think, okay, I'm in this job. I don't really like it right now. And if you just pay attention to the fact that you don't like your job right now, and every day you just sit there and complain about the job that you don't like today, that's just a short-term viewpoint. It's a tactical viewpoint. What you should be thinking is, okay, in two years, in three years, what can I do today that's going to start moving me to in a direction where in two or three years I can move away from this job and get myself into a better situation? And there's always progress to be made. But unfortunately, we spend a lot of time just thinking about what's right in front of us. And we don't think about, we don't think about the, the source of the problem. We just think of the problem that we're dealing with. Oh, this job sucks. Well, how am I going to get out of this job in two years? Because it might take two years to get out of a job. And if you have that kind of hope in your life, if you at least know, hey, I can get out of here. I'm, I have a plan. And it's going to be a tough plan, but I know I can execute it. If you have that, as far as I'm concerned, that's all you need. So what's an example plan? Like what would, what would be something you suggest to people? Or what have you seen people do? Oh, well, I talk to people all the time that have some career that they're in that they don't like. For, for whatever reason, maybe they don't like the, the, the way they have to interact with people. Maybe they don't interact with people enough. Maybe they don't feel like there's a long-term uh, like benefit for humanity with what they're doing and they want to do something that's more beneficial. Maybe they're feeling like it's a, a job where it's, they don't have any time for their family. So whatever it is, whatever they figure out, they say, you know, I just want to get out of this. Okay, well, let's come up with a plan on how to do it. Does that mean maybe you have to go to night school? Does that mean maybe you have to figure out some other skill set? and go to school on the weekends for two years. There's all kinds of ways, but you have to come up with a plan. Do you wanna just go in and quit your job? No, because now I can't feed my kids. So I'm gonna have to probably work hard for the next two years to set up something where I can move in a different direction. Mm -hmm.
Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of en- entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything 
than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H I M S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use Hims from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I noticed with the main character in this book, and in part because the character has to do things. He has to find some meaning, but he starts off with the dead end job. His brother's got an even more dead end job, but things are changing. And, uh, you know, I could say this because it's actually written in the description of the book. So it's not revealing anything, but he, as somebody, he has to take action to make all of them. He thinks it's because he wants to make his brother happy, but really it's also maybe giving him meaning in life outside of his dead end job. And it seems like even in this case where someone is, they can't quit for two years, but they want to spend more time with their family, perhaps even now they could spend a little bit more time with their family or a little bit more time writing their first novel or whatever, just something which gives, which is in the direction of meaning as well. They don't have to necessarily wait two years. Yeah, absolutely. Johnny didn't wait. Johnny didn't wait. And Johnny, again, Johnny's thinking very tactical. How do I solve this problem that's right in front of me right now? What's the quickest way for me to do that? If he could have maybe thought a little bit more strategic, maybe he could have figured out a way to solve this problem a little bit longer term and got through some bumps in the road. It would have been ta challenging, but he's thinking tactical. He's thinking, how do I solve this problem that's right in front of my face? Oh, I know. Here's a plan. They come up with a plan and it's a tactical plan. It's so tactical that as you're hearing the plan, it's uncomfortable. I mean, as you, you're thinking through the plan that they're going to execute and it's uncomfortable because it, you, you know, it's a short-term plan from the get-go. Right. You kind of have a sense. This is, well, it also says in the flap, this is going to end badly, <laughs> but, uh, you kind of have a sense anyway, something's going to go wrong here because these aren't the brightest people. They've never done it before. And they're going to try attempt something extremely risky. And uh, that's a perfect setup for bad things. Well, could happen. Uh, but by the way, when I was reading this and I think it's fair to say it's, it's, you know, a long, something's happening with a laundromat. They're trying to buy a laundromat. And I love, by the way, that aspect of the book also, 
because even in talks, I always think the best business one can do is, and I literally say this when I give a talk, is buy a laundromat <laughs> because it's a good cash business. Usually you're, you know, the old owner didn't upgrade the equipment or didn't do any marketing, but the, but it, the, the reason it's profitable is because it's already in a good location. So there's easy things you could do to improve the laundromat. Then as you increase cash flow, you could buy more laundromats. Like I was already thinking everything out for, for Artie here, like how he could build like a 20 laundromat chain and then sell it to a bigger chain and make millions of dollars. Like this, this is my favorite straightforward example of a, what's called a roll up in business. And laundromats are perfect because it doesn't matter if it's the apocalypse, people need to do their laundry and it's never going away. In the pandemic, laundromats were open. So a uh, great, great business. But yeah. Well, I wasn't really thinking it from the, from the business perspective. Um, you know, that's another kind of underlying theme in the book is that people get obsessed with, with things. Humans get obsessed with things, whether it's jujitsu or surfing or guitar or archery. These are four things that I have been coming obsessed with in my life and have a bunch of friends that are totally obsessed with those things. And, and you and I could probably name off a bunch of friends that are obsessed with things that we have. We can't even understand why they're obsessed with them. And so for me, I try to think of the thing that would be hardest to become obsessed by. And that thing landed on laundry. There's also a class. There's also for me, I was explaining to my, uh, one of my older daughters the other day, there's a class elevation in life when you're out on your own and a big step up the socioeconomic ladder is when you have your own washing machine and dryer. And if you've ever lived in a place where you didn't have a washing machine and a dryer, then you got to go to the laundromat. And that's a whole group of people. Yeah. And, and, and for me, I remember when I finally got a place where I didn't have to go to the damn laundromat and it was you know, before that one is a parking space. If you live in an urban area, if you have your own parking space, that's a huge step up in the socioeconomic ladder. Yes, I have my own parking space. Shortly after that one is, oh, hell yeah, I've got a washing machine and dryer. So that was, just, that was another know, for, thing that I thought about. For me, like when I first realized, oh, I'm doing okay in life is when I realized I could buy a VCR whenever I want. <laughs> Like I could just go out to the store and buy a VCR and it doesn't like impact me financially. <laughs> yeah. So people won't remember what a VCR was, but it's, it, you watch movies with it. <laughs> yes. As opposed to Netflix. To, yeah. So, so how, what, again, you decided to, did you like outline this out? Did you uh, think of the arc of the hero? Like what, what, what kind of method did you use to, to write this book? I, I, I thought of the characters first, because these are all people that I've kind of known. Uh, mm -hmm. Everyone in there, everyone from from Gerald Lundstrom, the the night manager, who's just a total jerk. Uh, I've I've worked for plenty of Gerald Lundstroms. I've known Johnny's. I've known Goats. I've known Artie. So I had all these characters in my head, and then it was just just put them in the world, and let's see where this thing goes. And that's exactly what I did. So that's a, so it's interesting because again, these characters model perfectly some prior characters in your life or, or, you know, maybe in some cases it was a combination of people, yep. but, uh, 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 I think that's a really powerful technique because you could always ask in your mind, the mental image you have of this character, Hey, what would you do here in this situation? And then they can do it in the book. <laughs> and yep. then of course there's escalating problems and, uh, you know, but, but one thing that's interesting 
I think we've seen in the past like 20 years, at least on TV, like with The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, we've seen people who do bad things. We're, we're sympathetic for them. They're the heroes. And Johnny's not always, I won't reveal anything, but he's not always doing everything on, on the straight and, and narrow. But no matter what, we have sympathy and love for this character. And I don't think before 20 years ago, we really saw much of that. Like, you know, again, the Sopranos, Tony Sopranos going around, killing people left and right, beating people up, cheating on his wife. And somehow or other, we love Tony Soprano. And, and the same thing with Breaking Bad and, and Mad Men and all those. What do you think it is that makes these characters appealing and allows us to have sympathy for them? Maybe it is the fact that they are going for meaning in their lives when everybody else just seems like falling asleep on the job. Yeah, and I think that most people recognize that, that they recognize some of these characters in themselves, right? They recognize, you know, just as you were talking about that, you know, there's some of my childhood, my youth wrapped up in both Johnny and Goat. And I thought about, we, we did really dumb things, just dumb things and made dumb decisions. And if, so when they're talking about how they're going to get this money, for them to come up with that plan, hey, when I was 19 or 20 years old, I, I, a little younger than that, actually, because once I joined the Navy, I, I was look, trying to stay out of trouble. But when I was younger, it was like, if someone came up with a wazoo plan like that, hey, I think we can pull it off. Let's rock and roll. And I think that everybody kind of recognizes, number one, they probably could have made these errors in their life at some point. And number two, I think there's, you know, these flawed characters. I think everyone's flawed. And I, and I think that people can relate more to flawed characters. Uh, why, why is Batman more popular than Superman, right? Superman's an not a flawed character. He's perfect. Batman's flawed. Batman's got psychological issues. And so people relate more to Batman than they do to Superman. Like, was it, you know, you mentioned with like Jeff Lang was uh, a little bit more rebellious than you in, in, in all these different situations. Was there ever a point though, where the decisions you were making could quite possibly have tipped too far and you wouldn't be where you are right now? Absolutely. Yep. But like what, what was the situation? Oh, I mean, we, I was in big fights, um, you know, growing up, getting in big fights with other groups of kids and you know, just doing stuff, stupid stuff, vandalism, breaking things, just, just really dumb, stupid, immature things. That's the kind of thing that, hey, you get rolled up one time, you get arrested, you got something on your record, all of a sudden you can't get whatever you can't get. Maybe you can't get into the Navy. I mean, it's, it's difficult to get in the military. Maybe I couldn't have gotten in the military if I had gotten arrested for something or done something stupid. And next thing you know, there I am. I, and now I'm going down this other path. And I, again, the best thing that happened to me was I joined the military because it ripped me out of those, that situation and put me where all of a sudden I had a, I had a positive goal. I had a positive place to put this energy that I had, which, you know, I'm a young testosterone filled, you know, borderline just Neanderthal caveman, Cro-Magnon human. So, so I've got all this stuff. I, you know, you, you give me a, you give me a stick and I'm going to pick it up and try and break something. It's just a young kid with, with too much aggression. And as soon as I got in the military, all that aggression became very focused. Okay. Here's what you need to do. And by the way, we, they recruit kids like me. That's what the military, well, that's what giant swaths, that's what some parts of the military are. They take kids that want to fight. Why would you not want a U.S. Marine 
that you, you want a U.S. Marine that wants to fight. You want someone in the SEAL teams that wants to fight, that wants to engage in combat. That's what your job is. You don't want, you're not looking for somebody that's going to, uh, you know, paint, uh, paint a, a masterpiece. That's not what you want. You want someone that's going to utilize a belt-fed machine gun to inflict murder on people. That's what you want. And I was very lucky because that's, that, that was me. And there you go. I signed up for the Navy. I squeaked through getting into any major trouble when I was a kid. And next thing you know, I'm in the Navy. And they took this aggression and said, yep, that's exactly how we want you to be. But you got to focus it over here. Cool. I'm in. What about the kids who couldn't focus it? Like, did you, did you ever see them kind of just go crazy in the Navy? Oh, in the, in the SEAL teams? Yeah, absolutely. Guys would get in, guys would get in big trouble. I mean, I, there's all kinds of stories. I mean, there's been stories in the news lately of guys getting in trouble, guys doing things that were over the line and they weren't contained properly by their leadership. That, that, that absolutely happens. Hmm. Uh, here's a stupid question. I always imagine when two people get into a fight, it'd be pretty easy to accidentally kill someone. <laughs> like you're a strong guy. Like if you just hit someone like hard in the face, is it going to like give them a concussion? They might die. It's, it's one of those random things where it can be, it's very difficult to kill someone. And yet the coincidental or the perfect shot or the unlucky shot, you can kill somebody very easily. Uh, there's been, there's been a, there was a case out here in San Diego, like a couple surfers got into a fight and one of the surfers hit the other surfer and the guy fell down, hit a curb dead, like one punch and the guy's dead. Then you go watch another fight or you can watch someone get, you know, stomped by a bull or thrown out of a window and they they walk away. So it's the same thing in combat. Some people in combat, they can get, you know, they can get shot, they can get blown up and they, and they literally walk away from it. Some people catch a tiny piece of fragmentation and, and it kills them. So the human body is very fickle in the way it operates. Now, you know, that, that's why I don't get into fights really. I don't want to kill anybody because, you know, my strength could be beyond what I real think it is. But uh, so, so what do you think what's going on right now? Like, are, is the country like doomed? I don't think the country is doomed. I think that we, what we need to recognize is we need to recognize that there is, there is division and the division is being propelled by forces by some external forces, some internal forces. And it's because it, it creates the outcome that some people want. So if you're in media or social media, what I want you to do is I want you to click on my headline. The way I get you to click on my headline is by making you angry or by making you polarized. That's how people, no one clicks on a bland headline. So we're not seeing any bland headlines. So the media and social media uh, emotional media, as I like to call the combination of those two, it's just emotions. They're just playing off of emotions. So we have their desire is to polarize us. But, the, but beyond the, that, even though, because it's led us to where we are now as a country, as even in terms of our political decision-making now, like, you know, we have this supply chain disaster where somehow or other, I don't even, there's so many things now. I usually am, understand why things are happening, I feel. But now I don't really understand why the supply chain is the way it is. I don't understand why nobody can, 
Like you go to a, the average hotel or restaurant, there's nobody working. They, they, they're, they're always understaffed now. Every company now, big or small, is understaffed. Uh, China, Taiwan, China's probably going to invade Taiwan and something bad's going to happen. And is there cause for optimism or are we starting ahead? Has, has social media taken us over some, some hump that we can't return from? No, I don't think so. And I think that I think we'll return. Um, and, and I think that people see the results of things. And I think there's a pendulum that swings back and forth, you know, with the, the recent, ele- I mean, you had Joe Biden win the election and that's, you know, a, a, a swing in one direction. And then you look to what just happened in the local elections in Virginia, came close to New Jersey. So you can see the pendulum swinging back. And I think that's what that's what that's what usually happens is these pendulums swing back and forth from the left to the right. And I think that because most people, most people are in the middle. And, and so you get the extremists on either side yelling and screaming, and they're the ones that are the most on social media. But I think most uh, normal humans, they're, they're, they just want, you know, stability, and they want things to be more normal. So I, I think we just saw some of that stuff happen in Virginia. And I think we'll see a little bit more of the midterm elections. There'll be a little bit more conservative on the midterm elections. And maybe for a little while, they'll swing in that direction. And eventually, they'll be a little bit too conservative, and it'll start to swim back. Yeah. So so what's happening with this supply chain stuff? Like I, I was saying, you probably could look out your window and see all the boats lining up to, to get into California. Well, what's been interesting for me is, so one of the companies that I that I own we make, we manufacture, we manufacture clothing and some equipment. Got a whole bunch of Jocko tea uh, downstairs. Right on. So including tea. So, but making boots, making jeans, making cotton t-shirts, we make all of this equipment and we make it all in America. So we've been committed to making all in America for years from the from the dirt to the shirt we we, it's completely made in america so we've known about the supply chain and we've we track our supply chain very carefully and we have been for a long time a normal company goes oh what's the cheapest price cool get it from china get it from pakistan whatever it's all good they don't really they weren't people weren't paying attention to the supply chain like we were and so we were very lucky because we saw the indications of the supply chain issues very early on, very early on. And so we, we, we were able to get ahead of it. So what is the result going to be? I think that a lot more people are going to do what my company origin does, which is they're going to source a lot more of their raw materials in America. And I think that a lot of manufacturing we, we brought, we've been bringing manufacturing back to America. We're bringing more back. I mean, it's awesome, James. We have been literally going overseas, buying manufacturing equipment and bringing it back to America. That's what we've been doing. It's awesome. We're training people on how to utilize the equipment and then we're making stuff here. So I think we're going to see a real uh, rebirth of manufacturing in America in the next, you know, two to five years. I agree. If we can survive the two to five years, cause still like all our food is like packaged in China and all our antibiotics are made in China. We yep. discover them here. We make them in China. So like, it's kind of insane. Like it, it was insane early on in 2020 when you started to realize how much like 99% of American industry came from China. And now we're seeing the ramifications of that as P 
people are coming out of the economic lockdowns. They want things and they're not here. Yeah. And, and I wonder <clears throat> if, it, you know, there's worries like, well, will this bleed into the stores so that you can't get the food you want or whatever? Yeah, I think some of it will bleed in the stores, but don't forget that America does have the capabilities for for these for this stuff. I mean, America has just got a vast ability and capability to create raw materials. We we need to bring back some of the manufacturing that we've lost. We've lost the ability to manufacture some things. But here's what the difference is: you know, when we were making things in America, when we started making things in America, we were told over and over again, "You can't do that here. You cannot do it here." You cannot have a, have a factory in America to sew shirts or jeans. It doesn't work. It's going to be way too much. We don't have the skills, the whole nine yards. And the reason that, that was basically the best I can deduce, that was, that's just been propaganda from the, big, from the big corporations that would rather be able to make a pair of jeans in China for $7 rather than paying $13 to make them here in America. And they wanted to save you know, that $6. And so they just said, no, we can't do it here. It's impossible. It's impossible. And and we realized very quickly, it's absolutely possible. And not only is it possible, it's in some cases, it's more efficient because we can do our whole design engineering and production at, right here in the, in the same building. Whereas when you do get something made in China, you know, you got to send it there, send it back, and then they got to ship it over here. It takes six weeks. It's just a real problem. So I think that that the prices are going to be driven up. I mean, right now it costs something like twenty five or thirty thousand dollars to get a container sent over here from China. It used to be five five or six thousand dollars to get a container sent over here from China. So this is going to bring this is going to start to open up opportunities for Americans to build, to create, to produce things and manufacture things in America. I think it's going to end up being a net positive. To your point, might we have a little downtick? And might have to go through some shortages in the meantime as we as we as we get through this kind of trough where we are still relying on things that are overseas. Yeah, we'll we'll see some shortages. I'll see, I'm sure we're gonna see some bare shelves for a while. But I think in the long run, I think it's gonna be beneficial for America when you become a little bit more uh, independent and self reliant. Yeah, I I agree. So, Jocko, what's next after Final Spin? With, you know, your novel. What Are you going to write another novel? Are you going to come up with a Navy SEAL detective? He's been thrown out of the Navy SEALs. Now he wanders the country, town to town. Always just wants peace in his life, but there's always, always solving some poor lass's problem. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of people, when they heard I was writing a novel, they, they were immediately thinking I was going to write about, you know, the ex Navy SEAL detective, as you just said, roaming the, roaming the world, wanting yeah. peace, but can't Jack find Reacher. it. Yeah. Just all day long. Right. And I don't know. I, I feel like that part of my life, I lived it yeah. and I, I, I enjoy a little bit more exploring other realms that i've brushed up against but maybe that i haven't actually lived myself and and so is that what you're gonna are, are you gonna keep writing novels yeah yeah i got like i said i got so many ideas in my head so many stories in my head and it's just a matter of deciphering and deducing which one of those i'm gonna is gonna come to the surface and i'm gonna actually write about and what would you do like wake up a little early every morning and and write or like what was your did you have a daily goal three pages a day thousand words a day takes me about an hour well this is such a great job, 
Jocko. I was really surprised and impressed. It's not, it's not a kid's book, which is your other prior works of fiction. This is your first thriller novel, and it's great. It's really a great job, and I, I'm sure it's going to do well. And uh, are you have any other nonfiction books in store? Uh, I do have another nonfiction that'll be coming out probably in about a year and a half. What's that about? It's it's uh, about leadership. All right. Well, what's it called? Uh, the trichotomy of <laughs> of, <laughs> of eco disciplines. <laughs> I actually let me write that down. Trichotomy of eco disciplines. That might be it. Do you want to co-author it with me? <laughs> sure, I'd co-author anything with you, but uh, I'm not qualified. You're you're the natural leader here. So oh, uh, that is excellent. That is an excellent title off the top of your head. The trichotomy <laughs> of eco disciplines. I love it. Well, th thanks so much once again, Jocko, for coming on the podcast. You always have something new to say and something new to do. And I think it's 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 inspirational all the ways you find meaning and and passion and motivation in your life. Like it's not just corporation. It's not just writing, uh, uh, you know, books on leadership. You've not written kids books. You've written this novel. I'm sure anybody, what would you say to someone who keeps saying, oh, once I retire, I'll write my novel. Uh, I would say what I just said, thousand words a day. Thousand Do not words a day. wait. Write a thousand words a day. The, the opportunity to publish, you can publish anything right now. You could publish anything. It, you can go on Amazon or whatever, and you can do a print on demand. There's almost no upfront investment to publish something, write something. So just try and get it out there. If you've got something that's percolating around in your head, get it out. What was the hardest part when you were writing this? Like, did you have a hard time figuring out how to escalate the problems or... What, what, what was an issue to me? Writing is just, it's, it's just manual labor. The ideas are in my head. I know what I'm going to write. I know the words I can see them on the page. It's just, I have to get them on the page. It's just manual labor. There's no, it's not it's quite, I, it's not hard. It's not hard for me. I don't sit there and struggle. I have never had like a block where I'm not sure what's going to happen. I don't know. It's all just in there. Just waiting to come out, man. Well, I'm looking forward to the next novel, the next nonfiction book and, and anything else. So Jocko, once again, thanks for coming on the, the podcast and sharing with us. Awesome, man. Well, hopefully I'll get to hang out with you in person sometime again. It's been a while since we did that. Yeah, I know. I wonder if that's, I wonder if people will, I mean, in general, people enjoyed the remote lifestyle and yep. uh, I wonder how much people are going to want to travel. I have to travel a lot in the next few weeks, actually, but it's the first time in a while. Yeah. And you got rid of your comedy club up in New York? Yeah, I sold my piece of it and moved out of New York. And it's definitely interesting. I've lived in, in and around New York all my life. And it's definitely, and not that New York's bad at all, but it's definitely interesting getting a different perspective on life now, like living a much more isolated life. <laughs> so I'm enjoying that. Awesome, man. Well, hey, great talking to you. I look forward to uh, seeing you at some point, hopefully in the future. Definitely. Thanks, Jocko. All right, man. We'll talk to you later. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.